Hebrews chapter 13 is where we'll be today as we finish up our very last sermon in Hebrews. It has been uh, almost a year, if not a year, that we've been making our way through the book of Hebrews, and uh, we come now to the bitter end. And the same way uh, it has been multiple times throughout the book of Hebrews, I found myself coming to this text that uh, I had by myself predetermined what I was going to preach and found myself wishing I had uh, chosen not to preach on so much because there's just so much in, um, frankly, just every verse throughout the book of Hebrews that uh, we could go on and on and on about. Uh, but hopefully the Lord will bless our time as we study Hebrews chapter 13, finish up this, uh, this letter together. Hebrews chapter 13, we will be starting in verse 15 and going down through 25, the end of the chapter. If you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly, do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we come now to this, our final portion of the book of Hebrews, and we come now today, Lord, asking for your help as we as we do every day that we come to this word, every Sunday as we come to your word, we come and we ask for your help, and Every day, Lord, that we come to your word, we need your help. But Lord, we are so thankful that every day that we come to your word, as we are empowered, as we are lifted up by the Holy Spirit, as our eyes are opened and our hearts understand these words, Lord, you do help us. You do aid us. You do give us all that we need by the Holy Spirit and your word. And so, Lord, we ask for no less today that you would equip us by the word of the book of Hebrews we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is a good thing, I think, to know yourself, at least to a, a certain extent, to know your shortcomings, to know your faults. Uh, certainly, we ought to be seeking to be aware of these things. Uh, as Christians, uh, we think about our, our faults and, and certainly our sins are those things that we ought to be confessing before the Lord. We ought to be seeking to repent of, turn from. Well, there are some things that are just frankly character issues. Uh, And when I say character issues, I don't mean moral character issues. I mean it's just who you are. 
One of those things for me that I think is probably not exclusively unique to me, something maybe other people in here struggle with, is that I struggle with leaving. This might sound strange to you at first, uh, but once I explain, I think you'll understand. Um, if you ever get together with your family, uh, or when we gather together on Sundays with our church family, or for Bible studies, or various things, there's always that one or two people, one, one or two people, right, who no matter what, they are going to be one of the last ones out the door. It's just their personality. What well, is absolutely the case with me, especially when it comes to being with my family, being with my my wife's family, with my friends, it is very, very hard for me to leave, for me to get out the door. There's always something else that I need to say, something else that I need to do, one more thing that needs to be done before I can leave, or I'm not going to be satisfied. There's always that one more thing. Just the other day, as we were leaving my my mom's house, uh, me and my two boys, we were leaving about 30 minutes past their bedtime, And as we're getting in the car, we're standing in the driveway, and I just had one more thing I had to tell my mom. One more story that she needed to know. And from the inside of the car, I hear the voice of my son Elijah, Dad, come on, it's past my bedtime. (laughs) And this is a common occurrence. Regularly, when my wife asks the boys, who would they like to ride home with? Elijah says, well, I'd like to ride with Dad, but he takes too long. And it's a true thing. I don't know if it's, if it's just being extroverted or being easily distracted or a combination of the two, but surely other people in here can relate to this sentiment. For my wife's family, this is also true. I think uh, the more I've been around my wife's family, the more I've discovered that there is an unspoken, unwritten rule where you have to hug at least twice before you can leave. The one hug will not do. And I say this and, and say that it's a, a sort of fault, and at times it has come back to bite me. Uh, certainly when my wife gets home at 9 o'clock, as me and the boys are getting home well past their bedtime, that's bit me in the butt a few times there. But I think also there is something that is good about this sentiment, that there's one more thing that needs to be said, that there's one more hug that needs to be given. And I get the feeling uh, that this is the, the sentiment of the author as we read the last portion of the book of Hebrews. This is the way the end of this letter feels to me. As the author has been, throughout this whole chapter, giving his readers exhortations as as a sort of final remarks before he closes this letter, it seems like he always has one more thing that needs to be said. He's starting to wind down, starting to bring it to a close, starting to land the plane. But wait, there's just one more thing I need to say. Don't forget about this. Don't forget about this. Make sure you do this. Oh, and lastly, do this. There's always one more thing. That's what I think we see as we get down to these last verses. Uh, The author of Hebrews, whoever he might be, I think uh, could be accused of him that he shares the same dilemma that I have and that seems like there's always one more thing, one important thing that needs to be said. There's always one more thing. I think we need to pay special attention to these last words that the author gives us here as indeed it seems like there's one last thing he needs to tell us, but we need to recognize something important that each and every one last thing that the author writes for us here is divinely inspired by God and is put in here for our benefit so that we might understand the truth rightly and live rightly in accordance with it. And so our task today is to come to these 
last and final words of the author as he has just one more thing, just one more thing to tell us and to seek to benefit from that which he offers up for us here at the end of Hebrews. As we look at these closing statements as he begins to draw the letter to a close, we see in verses 15 through 19, these are the final verses of the body of his letter before he gets to the final closing benediction. And these verses before the final benediction contain for us three exhortations or three commandments. These verses consist of, first of all, a call for us to worship, a call for us to submit, and a call for us to pray. First of all, in verses 15 through 16, we see that we are called to worship. We're commanded, we're called in these verses to offer up sacrifices to God. Given what we covered last week, this might seem contradictory. When we think about what it means to offer up sacrifices to God, if you recall from last week, we spoke about the altar that we have as Christians, that we have not a physical altar like the Jews do in the temple, in the tabernacle, but rather we have a spiritual altar that we come to, Christ being our spiritual altar and the sacrifice made there. And we've seen all throughout the book of Hebrews the the claim being made that no more sacrifices need to be made now that Christ, our sacrificial lamb, once for all sin has been sacrificed. And in him, all sin is forgiven. In him, no more atonement needs to be made. No more sacrifices need to be made in order for us to be forgiven of our sin. But forgiven, forgiveness, atonement, justification is found in Christ alone and in his finished work on the cross. He is the last and final sacrifice for sin. And so then when we read that, we might come to this verse and see, okay, well, we're called now, after knowing all of this in the closing verses of the body of this letter, to give a sacrifice. But the sacrifice which we are called to give to the Lord is a very different kind of sacrifice than that which was given on the altar. Very different kind of sacrifice that Christ came to be the fulfillment of, that he was the final sacrifice for. Meaning that we come and we bring a sacrifice as we are called to by the author of Hebrews, not one to atone for sins. We come not to bring a sacrifice in order to find forgiveness and to be made right with God, but rather because of the sacrifice that Christ has made, because he has died on the altar for our sin, we come now as an act of worship to bring a pleasing and beautiful sacrifice to God. What is the sacrifice that we are called to bring? Well, I would argue that there are two kinds of sacrifice, two kinds of sacrifices that the author is calling for here. As we worship God, we see from from these two verses that we are to worship him both in word and in deed. That this is to make up the sacrifices with, with which we are to worship the Lord. We see first of all in verse 15, he says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The first kind of sacrifice that the author calls us to is one of proclaiming the name of Christ, of worshiping him with our mouths, with our lips, of speaking the name of Christ and acknowledging him before men. We know that the book of James informs us of the the power of our tongue. The tongue is a very, very powerful piece of equipment. It's described as an utter, as a uh, rudder 
that guides a large ship. The whole ship is guided and turned and moved about by this one little piece of equipment. And what we know to be true of our tongues is that so often they're used to do great evil. They're used to do great harm. They're used to hurt, to cut down. They're used for sinful, wicked purposes. But here we are called to use that very same instrument and use it to the glory of God. That by that very same instrument, we can bring a sacrifice to the Lord that is pleasing in his sight. That is a fragrance to him that is beautiful and sweet and that pleases him. So let us worship God in word, having the name of Christ on our lips. Something that we don't often do. When we survey the amount of time we have in a week, and we consider how often the name of Christ is on our lips, I think we would find that it is far too low, that it is far too small of an amount of time. And yet this is a way in which we can worship God and worship Him rightly as He has commanded us to worship Him by acknowledging His name with our lips. Let us worship God in word, but also let us worship God indeed, as he says in verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So here we have two kinds of sacrifices, one that is found to be on our lips and on our tongue and one that is to be found in our deeds and in our actions, that we are to do good and we are to share what we have, that we are to selflessly sacrifice for those around us, certainly for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then also for the world around us. That in both of these ways, by worshiping God in word and in deed, we can please Him. At the risk of sounding redundant, I would remind us of the verse that I brought up a few weeks ago, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul tells us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. This is the summary of what the author is telling us here of how we can make a sacrifice pleasing to God. That we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual worship. Not a physical sacrifice on a physical altar, but offering up ourselves spiritually to the Lord, worshiping Him in word and in deed. But as the first words And these verses makes clear in verse 15, the ability to offer a pleasing sacrifice to God in this way is made possible only by Jesus Christ. Only those who are in Christ are able to please God in this way. Even when the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter eight, verse eight, when he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But as believers, as followers of Christ, We have been given not only the command, but also the ability and also the privilege to worship God, to please Him in this way. This is the reality. Before Christ, pleasing God was utterly impossible. There was nothing that we could do that was pleasing in God's sight. Even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. But what we see true that is true in Christ Jesus is that in him, Christ is pleased with our sacrifice, that he wants our worship and we can please him. For the first time ever in our lives, we can please God through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. By faith in him, being empowered by the Holy Spirit that indwells within us, 
We actually have the ability to please the God of the universe, the creator of all things. And this is no small task that we've been given, no small privilege that we have been given. And I think that what we'll find, and if uh, you are a follower of Christ in here today, then you can attest to the fact that what's true is that the more we offer to God this kind of praise, this kind of sacrifice, the more joy we receive, the more we are empowered, the more we are encouraged in Christ and by the Spirit. We are both called and empowered to offer these kinds of sacrifices to God that are pleasing to him, to worship him in both word and deed. Second, we see that we are called to submission in verse 17, where the author says, obey your leaders and submit to them. That line alone presents us with some words that make people very, very uncomfortable. We don't like the idea of being told that we are to obey, that we are to submit especially here in the United States where we so cherish our our freedoms and our liberties. The idea that we have been commanded to submit, to obey, rubs against our grain, doesn't it? If we're honest, as human beings filled with pride and self-centered, it rubs us the wrong way to be told that we are to submit. And yet all of us in here would, would agree, if we are a follower of Christ, that we are to submit to the very word of God. And we find that to be true and easy and right. We say, yes, absolutely, submit to the word of God. Obey the word of God. It is the authority for all things. Christians, the world around, believe this. And then when the word of God, which we are called to submit to, says, oh, and submit to your leaders, all of a sudden it gets much more difficult. That a man, human being, would have authority over us rubs against our grain. And yet that's exactly what we are called to here. We are called to obey your leaders, submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. This verse presents the responsibilities not just of church members who are called to submit to their leaders, which is what the author is implying here, but also to the elders, that there's a dual responsibility at play here. That as members of the church are to submit to their elders, the elders of the church are to exercise authority rightly and truly and faithfully as those who will have to give an account. There are responsibilities going both ways here. And for myself and and the other pastors here at Redeemer, and for any who would desire to be a pastor or a leader in the church, we need to hear this and we need to take it very seriously very seriously, that those who shepherd the church of God will give an account, will give an account for how they used their words, for how they taught God's word, for how they shepherded and cared for the congregation, for how they used their time. Here we see that the call to submission is a difficult one, but it is one that spreads across the entire church, both members and leaders alike. But notice that despite the the challenges inherent in submission and responsibilities of watchful care and submitting to our leaders, that when these roles roles are executed properly, it results in joy for church leaders and it advantages church members. That when we submit to our leaders, when we submit to our pastors well and lovingly, when we care for them the way we ought, and trust them the way the Bible has commanded us. 
That it will result in them being able to exercise their authority joyfully. And when a pastor is able to joyfully and faithfully exercise his authority, it is good for the whole congregation. He said, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. The pastors who are able to serve and serve with joy and without groaning will be of the greatest advantage to their church members. So again, there's two things to be said here. First of all, church members, submit to your leaders, submit to your elders, and do so so that they might be able to lead you with joy and without groaning. Do not give them reason to groan. Do not give them reason for despair. And in turn, pastors, leaders, teachers, lead the congregation with joy and with gratitude and with faithfulness. We've all probably met those pastors, if you've been around the church very long at all, that you meet them and it's just nothing but gloom, nothing but groaning. There seems to be no joy in their life. It makes, makes you wonder, man, who would want to sit under that pastor's teaching? Who would want to be shepherded by that guy? The fact of the matter is that leaders who are able to joyfully and faithfully exercise this that they are called to do without groaning are those who will be of the greatest advantage to their congregation. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, submit to your leaders, submit to your elders. Not because myself, Robert and Aaron are just so wise and so great. Not because our egos are gonna be harmed if our church doesn't submit to our authority. But because we want Robert, you want Aaron, and you want me to be able to do so without groaning and with joy. And let me tell you just from personal experience, as a pastor, and as a pastor that has been blessed with a congregation that cares for him and loves him and recognizes the authority that God has, for whatever reason, placed on my life, it is so much better and so much easier to have a congregation that cares for and loves, for me, loves me and Robert and Aaron than those who don't. And so I would say a quick word of thank you for the love, for the care, for the support, for the submission that I have found to be true in this congregation by and large. And I would also tell you that doesn't mean that there have been no hardships, that there have been no difficult times, that there have been no reason for groaning. But I would say to myself, to Robert and Aaron, don't dwell on those times. It is so easy to focus on when we don't feel like things are fair, when we don't feel like the congregation cares for us, when we don't feel like other people know what's going on or they aren't submitting to us the way they ought. It's easy to become frustrated and to lose our joy. And a part of what we are called to do as pastors and leaders is not to dwell on those things, but to be joyful in all things, giving all things for the sake of the church. We are called church family to submission here in the final words of Hebrews and finally, the last exhortation, the last command we are given from the author is we are commanded to prayer. In verses 18 and 19, the author says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. These verses here, verses 18 and 19, are building upon the command that he has just given in verse 17 regarding submission to leaders of the church, where he has said, submit to your leaders, obey your leaders, but now he is building upon that and saying, not only submit to them and obey them, but pray for your leaders. The author here is referring to himself, 
But the need for prayer goes beyond just the author of Hebrews, but to all church leaders, to the leaders of Redeemer Fellowship Church. We say to you, church family, we desperately need your prayers. We covet your prayers. Not only do we need them, do we covet them, but the church won't be sustained without them. He says, pray for your pastors that we might have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. This ought to be the prayer of our heart for our pastors, for our leaders. All the more as we look around and we see pastor after pastor ending up in news headlines. Leader after leader failing, falling into moral failure, ruining his reputation, ruining his conscience. Church family, I'll tell you, when Robert and Aaron and myself hear of these stories, our response is not, and your response ought not to be, well, that would never happen here. That would never happen to us. I can't believe those guys would fall into such sin, such debauchery. I can tell you for myself, Robert and Aaron, knowing ourselves, knowing our hearts, our cry is, Lord, keep, this, keep us from this. Keep us from failing in this way. Keep us from sin. And church family, my hope is that that would be your prayer for us as well. For we are not above sin, even grave sin. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your pastors as we so desperately need it. As you hear of these headlines, don't say, well, that would never happen in my church. That would never happen to my pastor. Instead, fall on your knees and pray that the Lord would keep us from that. Pray that the Lord would keep our consciences clear and that we would act honorably in all things. After these final exhortations, we finally get to the benediction of the letter. We get to what ought to be the closing of the letter. Here in Hebrews, this prayer that the author prays for his readers. And let me tell you, church family, this benediction is worth the wait. You would be hard-pressed to find a more beautiful benediction in all of the New Testament letters than what the author of Hebrews has written for us here. Let's read it now. The author says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As we look at this benediction, each and every phrase of this benediction is dripping with importance and is dripping with beauty and doctrine and significance. As we just consider it phrase by phrase, we see that this is also largely a summary of the book of Hebrews. As he begins, he says, may the God of peace. Why is he able to declare that God is the God of peace? Because in Christ Jesus, he has created peace between God and man. That because the sacrifice for sin has been made, no longer are we God's enemies, but we have been made sons and daughters of him by the blood of Jesus Christ. Peace has been brought between us and our creator. This is the God we serve. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Here again we see Christ's eternal priesthood. That unlike all other priests that came before him, who served for a while and then died, and their priesthood ended, Christ lasts forever. For he is alive, and he is reigning on the throne. Even today, he is born again from the dead and mediating on our behalf. He is the eternal priest. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. 
You recall from early on in the book of Hebrews that Christ, being greater than all, is greater even than Moses, the greatest of the great in the Old Testament. There has hardly been a greater shepherd than Moses, who literally shepherded God's people out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. And here in the book of Hebrews, what is declared to us, but that Jesus is greater even than Moses, the great shepherd of the sheep who cares for us, who watches over us by the blood of the eternal covenant. At least one more time, he has to get this in there. The importance of the new covenant, that the old covenant has passed away, no longer is that applicable to us, but that in Jesus Christ, the new covenant has been established and the law fulfilled by his blood and it lasts forever. And then he goes on to say that he may equip you with every good that you may do his will. If you were here last Sunday night, then you'll remember as Cody spoke, he spoke of the law and the ability that is now ours as Christians to obey the law better than ever before, better than any Pharisee has ever obeyed the law, we as Christians can obey the law better and more perfect now. And why do we do so? Not so that we might be declared righteous before God, for our righteousness is not found in our obedience to the law, but in Christ alone. But we do so as an act of worship, to bring a sacrifice that is pleasing to God, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What an amazing prayer and a perfect summary of the letter to the Hebrews. In this also, we see the heart of the author, the care for he has, that he has for his readers. And we recognize that this is the heart of God towards us. This is the love that he has towards us and the care he has for us. The intention of the Holy Spirit is that all of the doctrine, all of the theology, the theology that's covered throughout the book of Hebrews would result in our being equipped to do the will of God in Christ Jesus. And as we have said, we can only do so in Christ Jesus, who is our sacrificial lamb, our good and right shepherd. By his blood, we enter into the new and better covenant. As I said earlier, and as I've titled my sermon, you might think that amen would mark the end of the letter at the end of our benediction here. But again, it, it does not. In fact, the author just has one more thing to say. And he says here in verses 22 through 25, something we're not, we're not going to dive all the way into this, but there are a few things in this last statement that he makes, in this last and final greeting, this last thing he has to declare to the church, a couple things that I want us to see. First of all, in verse 22, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. First of all, we might read that and think, briefly? This has been 13 chapters. We've been in this for a whole year. And has anyone ever received this kind of brief email? It takes you days and days to read and to sift through. I think for us also as People who live in the day and age that we live in with the technology we have, we uh, maybe find that anything above 120 characters is, is lengthy, is lacking in brevity. Certainly in this day and age, it was not as uncommon to write long letters such as this. But we do have in the books of the New Testament shorter letters, don't we? Several. Several that find themselves to be shorter than 
Hebrews. We might say, well, those are brief Hebrews. I don't know that 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 is brief. But I think when we consider the significance of the topic with which that the author of Hebrews is writing about, what has he been writing about? Well, let's look at the benediction again. He's been writing about the God of peace, how peace has been brought to the people of God. He's been writing about Jesus Christ, our eternal priest, our mediator, who right now is mediating for us the right hand of the Father. The blood of the eternal covenant, the new covenant that has been established now between God and man. These three things alone, you think that he's writing about the new covenant. He's writing about our salvation. He's writing about our standing before God that we can now enter into the very presence of the holy and righteous God. We can do so with confidence. I think we would all be hard-pressed to sum up these topics in 13 chapters. When you consider the significance that he is writing, the significance of this topic, the weight of this topic, you can't help but conclude, yeah, that was brief. Books upon books upon books have been written about these very topics, and none of them so thoroughly, so truly, so rightly as this divinely inspired book to the Hebrews. It reminds me of a quote that is attributed to Mark Twain, though I think it originated elsewhere, but the way he wrote it I think is witty and clever. At the end of a letter that he wrote to a friend of his, he apologized, uh, saying, I apologize for such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. The idea being that it is oftentimes very easy to write and write and write and speak and speak and speak and say a whole lot of nothing. But to say the truth and to say it rightly and truly and accurately and to do it in a short amount of time is actually actually very difficult and takes a lot of work and takes a lot of effort. The author appeals to us, I appeal to you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. Bear with this letter that we have been giving It's difficult. It's difficult to read books like this that are theological, that have a lot of doctrine that we find to be hard and difficult to understand. And it's easy for us to throw up our hands as we read a book like this and say, I just don't understand. But don't give up. Bear with the exhortation he calls us to. You will not be dissatisfied. He calls us to do so. And by this, we find grace, as he says at the very end of the book of Hebrews, the final statement in verse 25, he says and concludes, grace be with all of you. This seems to me to be the one last hug that the author has for his brothers and sisters in Christ. One more thing, grace be with all of you. This is the basis of the gospel, grace. Not only is it the basis of the gospel, it is what sustains us as believers as we heard last week that we are encouraged by grace. It is by grace that you have been saved and by grace that our hearts are strengthened. It is what distinguishes the law from the gospel as the author has been writing to us. It is God's unmerited favor upon us poured out through Christ Jesus. Church family, if there was ever a way to sum up this book, I can think of nothing better than to say, grace be with all of you. May the grace of God that he has shown us in Christ Jesus to free us from the burden of the law, to fulfill the law for us, to atone for our sins so that we might come before the Lord and be found righteous, that we might be established in the new covenant of Christ's blood. 
May this grace be with all of you. Let's pray.